Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night. We give you thanks for the season of Lent as we seek to prepare ourselves and to reflect on the things of your kingdom and where we have fallen short. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside all of the cares and occupations of this day and that you would help us to tune in to what you might desire to speak to us through your Holy Spirit tonight as we look at scripture and as we look at this story. Lord, we thank you for this book and pray that you would use this time to help us be more like Jesus. For we pray all of this in his name. Amen. So, uh, very glad to be back after we were away last week for Ash Wednesday. One of the things that is very exciting right now is that as we have been working our way through The Last Battle, which is such a marvelous book, uh, one of the things that happens when you get toward the end, which is where we are starting to get now, uh, is that it shifts in terms of its subject matter and it becomes a beautiful reflection on the afterlife. And so uh, we're going to be moving into that theme. And just some of you who look at calendars and think, how is he going to stretch out these last few chapters? Uh, I could do that, but I'm not going to. We're going to give full weight to these remaining chapters, but then we're going to, for the end of our term, uh, do Lewis's uh, sermon, The Weight of Glory. So uh, that is a coming attraction. So uh, we're going to begin with a little bit of music. And this music, I'm actually going to assign, if you are a snorkeler or a scuba diver, it is going to be part of your homework um, to listen to all of this. So we can see if anyone knows what this is. tempted to just play that whole thing because it's so gorgeous. But that is a choral anthem by a British composer named Bainton. And the text of the choral anthem is word for word from Revelation 21. And so the opening lines that the choristers were singing were, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then it moves along and then it gets to this glorious part where you hear the voice of God with the full choir. And then what is possibly the most beautiful tenor line in all of choral literature, the, the tenors come in and sing, and God shall wipe away all tears. And I defy you to listen to that without crying. It is absolutely beautiful. So uh, I commend that to you. Let's begin with saying our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So just a couple of words of welcome for people that are new, either in person or online. Uh, We are glad you're here. If you're new, there are three ways to approach this class. One is that you can be on the beach, which basically means you don't do anything. Um, You don't even come. Uh, But you think of yourself as being in the class. If that's all you want to do, that is absolutely fine. Or you can snorkel, which means on the parts that you find interesting, you can go deep. If you've always been obsessed with Susan Pevensey, for example, and you saw the handout tonight, you might really want to read that, and you can snorkel about Susan. Or you can be a scuba diver, which means you read everything, including the 35-page handouts um, from scholarly papers that I send out sometimes. Um, But there is no shame, whichever of those you choose, I'm delighted to have you. Uh, If you are new and uh, are not on our email list, uh, please sign up if you're here in person. Or if you're out in podcast land, Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, United States, and you will find me on there, and you can send me an email, and we will get you added. And uh, a special welcome, I know there are a number of people Um, out in podcast land that are engaging as part of their Lenten discipline. So we're very glad to have you. So uh, we've talked about part of the reason that this book is so important is that it shows the genius of how Lewis wrote because he's simultaneously doing three things, uh, any one of which would be quite an attainment, but to do them all at the same time is really remarkable. The first thing is that you see this book as a marvelous capstone to all of the Narnia stories. It draws all of them together and ties up all the loose ends. But it also is a profound reflection on the sin of Eden and the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And it is a parable about following Jesus that seems to be uniquely applicable in our cultural moment, because Lewis is dealing a lot with the themes of word, what words mean, what does language mean, and the concept of truth. And both of those are things that are very much in play in our culture right now. So we have uh, gone through the first uh, 11 chapters of the book, and we are now in the the last battle, uh, which the book takes its title from, where the forces of Narnia, the true Narnians under King Tyrion, um, are fighting with the Calermines under Rish de Tarkhan, and they are fighting for their lives, and they are outnumbered. So last time we met, uh, we saw Rish de calling for uh, the Narnians to join his side and fight against King Tyrion, uh, but they don't really, for the most part, do that. Uh, there's a whole subtext going on here about Tash, the evil demonic god of the Calermines, that all through the book, Tash has been said by the ape, who's the leader of uh, this rebellion, that Tash and Aslan are the same that there's no difference, that all gods are the same. Uh, But here we're starting to see the true colors of Tash. So a couple of themes that we saw, when you sow evil, you will reap evil. Uh, When you're confronted with real evil, terror and hiding replace bravado. 
Um, the danger of calling on gods that you don't believe in, messing around with the demonic, um, the joy of fellowship and the created order, uh, the way that fear can corrupt sound judgment, uh, and the way that jeering and making fun of others is utterly destructive and can allow for treachery and evil to prosper. And on a happier note, that when all the gifts in the body are used in concert, amazing things can happen. So that brings us to chapter 12, through the stable door. And you will remember, as we've said many times, Lewis never does anything by accident. And so the fact that a stable is the center of action here, he is wanting us to think about the stable of the nativity. So that is gonna come into play in the next chapter. So here in this chapter, we see Tyrion and company huddling at the white rock on the battlefield, only to turn around and see one of the Calermines has grabbed Eustace, one of the main characters, and is carrying him off through the stable door beyond the possibility of rescue. And so, of course, they are horrified and terrified, and this battle ensues, and the dwarfs, who are very problematic, we're going to talk more about them in a couple of chapters, they aren't on anybody's side. They're against everyone. So you never know who they're going to shoot at. Well, this time they decide to shoot at the Calermines, which helps the Narnians. Uh, but the Calermines get really angry, and so they take the 11 dwarfs that survive and they bind them and they take them and say, we are going to offer you as a sacrifice to the great God Tash. And they open the door and now they're calling the stable the shrine of Tash and they throw the dwarfs in and there's an earthquake and all of these sounds and all of the Calermines are beating on their shields and yelling, Tash! Tash, the great god Tash, inexorable Tash. Well, of course, everyone else on the Narnian side is terrified by all of this. Rishta then reaches out again to the boar and the talking dogs and the unicorn, saying, come to our side, trying to tempt them not to be loyal to what they know is true. But they resist and... Uh, so uh, he is not very happy about that. And so the last battle ensues where this enormous Calermine force, which outnumbers the Narnians probably four or five to one at this point, attacks them and they are taken captive. And so Tyrion is fighting all the way up until he's right next to the stable door. And he knows that they're trying to push him in. And at the last minute, he grabs Rishta Tarkhan's belt and says, if I'm going in, you're going in too. And so they both go through this door. And Rishta is absolutely terrified, and they confront Tash, who is this horrible, evil-smelling god that has this big beak and all of these arms that wants to eat these sacrifices. And so he begins picking at Rishta and then throws him and carries him off to go and eat him. And Tyrion thinks that maybe he's next. But all of a sudden, this beautiful, strong, calm voice calls out that banishes Tash in Aslan's name. And so Tash vanishes. Rishta vanishes. And Tyrion is alone in the stable. 
And then as he turns around in amazement, he sees before him all of the kings and queens of Narnia from every age, now including Jill and Eustace in royal attire, but missing Susan. And they are clean and they look especially noble and they're beautifully attired. And he's embarrassed because he's bloody and dirty and smelly from the battle. And then he realizes that miraculously, he too is now clean and beautifully dressed and his heart beats fast with joy. I'm just warning, you may want to bring your Kleenexes for the next few classes. Um, So some themes in this chapter. Fighting to the last strength for your friends is noble. Simple things like water from a rock in a time of crisis can provide comfort. Death is not the end and may be the door to Aslan's country. Evil and demonic false gods like Tash exist and are powerful, but not as powerful as Aslan. Aslan knows and protects his own. Pain and suffering and injury and age are replaced by Aslan with a clean and noble beauty. Not all enter into Aslan's presence. And as we've talked about in earlier classes, uh, one of the things that Lewis is very clear about in the Narnia stories is that they are a, what he calls a supposal. And so he says Aslan is Jesus basically for Narnia. If there had been a land like Narnia, that Jesus would be someone like Aslan in that land. So when you see Aslan in the story, think about Jesus. So the first theme, fighting to the last strength for your friends is noble. A terrible sight met the Narnian's eyes. A calamine was running toward the stable door, carrying something that kicked and struggled. As he came between them and the fire, they could see clearly both the shape of the man and the shape of what he carried. It was Eustace. Tyrion and the unicorn rushed out to rescue him, but the calamine was now far nearer to the door than they. Before they had covered half the distance, he had flung Eustace in and shut the door on him. Half a dozen more calamines had run up behind him. They formed line on the open space before the stable. There was no getting at it now. Even then, Jill remembered to keep her face turned aside, well away from her bow. Even if I can't stop blubbing, I won't get my string wet, she said. And what you see here is this band of brothers and sisters who are so deeply committed to each other, they lose the first one of their company and there's absolutely nothing they can do. And even when they are in this extremity, they still have the courage to try to carry on and fight for their remaining friends. And of course, this is illustrated in so many scripture passages Jesus in that dialogue at the Last Supper says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. A man of many companions may come to ruin, 
but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And part of the reason this is so important right now is we've talked about how we are living in a culture that is so narcissistic and is so isolated and is so full of loneliness. And here you see this beautiful picture painted of people who are in extremity, but they are loving each other. They are absolutely committed to each other. They are there for each other and they are not afraid to show their love or their emotions and they are truly bonded because of their allegiance to Aslan. So simple things like water from a rock in a time of crisis can provide comfort. And of course, once again, none of this is by accident. Water from the rock is a huge theme in the scriptures, um, in the Old Testament. Water, Jesus calls himself the living water. Uh, we heard about that in our homily and the service this evening. So Lewis is very intentional about this. I mean, he could just as well have said a stream went by or something like that, but that's not what he does. It's water from a rock. All the calamines banged the flats of their swords on their shields and shouted, Tash, Tash, the great god Tash, inexorable Tash. There was no nonsense about Tashland now. The little party by the white rock watched these doings and whispered to one another. They had found a trickle of water coming down the rock and all had drunk eagerly, Jill and Pagan and the king in their hands, while the four-footed ones lapped from the little pool which it had made at the foot of the stone. Such was their thirst that it seemed the most delicious drink they had ever had in their lives. And while they were drinking, they were perfectly happy and could not think of anything else. And you can just almost envision the sparkling water coming down this white rock and pooling up. And notice the characteristics that Lewis has given to this water. It's a lot like the living water, that it refreshes them and it clears their mind and their hearts of all of the horror and terror that they were around, just as we see in scripture that perfect love cast out fear. So uh, a reminder about the first water from the rock, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And this is a beautiful testimony to the fact 
that God is not just concerned about people's spiritual welfare. He's concerned about their physical welfare and providing for them, even when their attitude is, uh, let's just say, snarky. And then this beautiful line that is out of Revelation 21 uh, at the end here. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And that is a beautiful fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. And this imagery about the living water and the streams of water and in the Psalms and the 23rd Psalm, the good shepherd leading us by the still waters, all of this is just a reminder that God is very aware of our needs and he wants to do something more than just make it okay. He wants to bless us with this water uh, that will be water that when we receive it, we neither hunger nor thirst um, and that it is a spring of the water of life. And that is something that is amazing. One of the things that uh, Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity that's so easy for us to forget because in English, we only have one word for life, and that word is life. Uh, not surprisingly, but if you look in the, in the prologue of John's gospel, uh, and you look at it in the Greek, one of the things that you see in the New Testament is that there are two words for life. One is bios, which is like biology. Um, a tree has bios, grass has bios, a fly has bios. But the other word is zoe. And zoe is the life of God, the eternal life that is what you see in the Trinity and the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in John's gospel, when it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, he, it says, in him was zoe. And that Zoe was the light of men, that Jesus invaded this world to bring that Zoe, that life that is the eternal life of the spirit. And that's the same life that this water is. It's the water of life. And next time you're in the church, I would commend to you to look at the stained glass window. And if you haven't gotten Penn Hagen's pamphlet on that, read that. But the very top of the window is a depiction of Revelation 21. And what you will see is this beautiful river that's deep blue glass with a little white for ripples in it that runs out there. And then you will see the tree of life with the fruit for the healing of the nations. Um, it's all up there. So it is a, such an encouragement because it's a reminder that that is our ultimate destiny which is a great lead-in to death is not the end and may be the doorway to Aslan's country. Now, what we're going to see is this imagery of the door is going to keep coming up over and over and over again 
in these last chapters. And as we said, Lewis does not do anything by accident. So if you look in John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking a lot about being the good shepherd, one of the things that you will see that is one of the coolest verses in all of the gospels, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. And just think about what, is that, what does that mean that Jesus himself is the door? And so Lewis is gonna play with this idea over the next couple of chapters. So Pagan the dwarf, I feel in my bones, said Pagan, that we shall all one by one pass through that dark door before morning. I can think of a hundred deaths I would rather have died. It is indeed a grim door, said Tyrion. It is more like a mouth. Oh, can't we do anything to stop it, said Jill in a shaken voice. Nay, fair friend, said Jewel, nosing her gently. It may be for us the door to Aslan's country, and we shall sup at his table tonight. And this is such an interesting little exchange because you see portrayed there different attitudes toward death and how you anticipate what is going to happen. You can see there's a sea of difference between it is indeed a grim door, more like a mouth, and they're thinking of the mouth of Tashlan because they have heard stories about how Tashlan devours things. So you have that image of like this horrible mouth of like something you would see at Carowinds at Halloween. Uh, so you've got that image on the one side, and then on the other side, you have the image of this doorway that goes into Aslan's country where that feast, the great marriage feast of the lamb is gonna be spread out before you for you to enjoy with Aslan. And it's the same death, but very different views about what that means. And there's so much wonderful scripture about this. I tell you this brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, I would suggest we might want to spend more time reflecting on that passage because that is, if you know Jesus, that is your destiny. And you're not going to hear that out in our culture right now. And then uh, this beautiful passage, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And that is in Isaiah written in the 6th century BC, 
but anticipating and looking forward to this fulfillment in Revelation 21. And then Jesus to the thief on the cross, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And one of the things that's so important about this, and particularly as you think about being in an old church like St. Philip's, one of the things you may not know is that part of the reason that the windows at St. Philip's and the windows of all of the uh, colonial Anglican churches in South Carolina are clear is that many of them were surrounded by graveyards. And the idea is that you reflect on the fact that you're going to die. And the idea is that the preacher who goes into the pulpit looks straight ahead and sees the living congregation and looks to the left out the window and see those that have gone. And it provides a sense of urgency. But if you read in a lot of the history of St. Philip's, one of the things that you will see is that people were keenly aware that they were going to die. Uh, there was a horrible part uh, in the 19th century when there was a yellow fever epidemic and the rector at the time records that he spent all day, every day for like a week doing funerals, just one after another and like, the people that were mourners at the beginning of the week, he was burying at the end of the week as people died from this. And so death was something that people were aware of. People used to go um, on certain days of the year and go to the churchyard um, to tend to the graves and to remember the dead. And now we put so much distance between death and us. We like to pretend that there is no such thing as death. Uh, People used to witness death all the time because people died at home. We've removed it all, and we like to pretend it's not going to happen. But if you're a Christian, death is not something to be afraid of. It's not to say that we should have a death wish by any means. But what we know, if we belong to Jesus, is that death is the doorway to eternal life with him. And keeping that understanding that that is the end of the path that we're on will alter our priorities and our decisions in a way that can be very healthy. So evil and demonic false gods like Tash exist and are powerful, but not as powerful as Aslan. I was tempted to make the song tonight be that children's song, God is Stronger Than the Boogeyman. <laughs> because that's sort of what this is saying. So uh, a new idea came into Tyrion's head. He dropped his sword, darted forward in under the sweep of the Tarkhan scimitar, seized his enemy by the belt with both hands and jumped back into the stable shouting, come in and meet Tash yourself. There was a deafening noise as when the ape had been flung in, the earth shook and there was a blinding light. Tyrion steadied himself, blinked, and looked around. It was not dark inside the stable. He was in strong light. He turned to look at Rishta Tarkon, but Rishta was not looking at him. Rishta gave a great wail and pointed. Then he put his hands before his face and fell flat, face downward on the ground. A terrible figure was coming toward them. It was far smaller than the shape they had seen from the tower, though still much bigger than a man, and it was the same. It had a vulture's head and four arms. Its beak was open. 
and its eyes blazed. A croaking voice came from its beak. Thou hast called me into Narnia, Rishtatarkon. Here I am. What hast thou to say? But the Tarkon neither lifted his face from the ground nor said a word. He was shaking like a man with bad hiccups. He was brave enough in battle, but half his courage had left him earlier that night when he first began to suspect that there might be a real Tash. The rest of it had left him now. With a sudden jerk, like a hen stooping to pick up a worm, Tash pounced on the miserable Rishta and tucked him under the upper of his two left arms. Then Tash turned his head sidewise to fix Tyrion with one of his terrible eyes, for of course, having a bird's head, he couldn't look at you straight. But immediately from behind Tash, strong and calm as the summer sea, a voice said, be gone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place. In the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea, the hideous creature vanished with the Tarkon still under its arm. That's a great reminder that there is a battle, but as the scripture says, the battle belongs to the Lord and Lord, the Lord has conquered evil and death and trampled those down under his feet. And even though evil is real and demons and evil forces are out there, we need to always remember that Jesus is stronger than any of those. So from 1 John, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then from Hebrews, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then Jesus speaking, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And then from the Gospel of Luke, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then from Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And you will remember from several classes ago, uh, when we were talking about Genesis 3.15 and the Proto-Evangelion, the whole idea that in the garden, we have that seed of redemption when we hear that uh, the serpent will bruise the man's heel, but the seed will crush his head. And that is the beginning of the good news of the gospel all the way back there in Genesis. So Aslan knows and protects his own. But immediately from behind Tash, strong and calm as the summer sea, a voice said, be gone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place. In the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea. And Tyrion turned to see who had spoken. And what he saw then set his heart beating as it had never beaten in any fight. Seven kings and queens stood before him, 
all with crowns on their heads and all in glittering clothes. But the kings wore fine mail as well and had their swords, swords drawn in their hands. Tyrion bowed courteously and was about to speak when the youngest of the queens laughed. He stared hard at her face and then gasped with amazement, for he knew her. It was Jill. And one of the things that you're going to see in these last chapters is Aslan's care for those who belong to him, a care that is tender and loving and personal and full of healing and living water. So some scriptures. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And this great saying from Jesus, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And one thing to note here that is just absolutely breathtaking uh, from that passage in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. But look at what comes next. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, Jesus' knowing of us is as deep and as full of love as the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. That is absolutely astounding. And that is something, John 10 is a great place to spend some time meditating. I think it's very clear that when Lewis was writing this, he was spending, he was bouncing back and forth between John 10 and Revelation 21. Uh, but these are things that are deeply true about the kingdom of God, but they're not things that are usually in the front of our mind most of the time, and we need to recall them. So pain and suffering and injury and age are replaced by Aslan with a clean and noble beauty. Tyrion stared hard at her face and then gasped with amazement, for he knew her. It was Jill, but not Jill as he had last seen her, with her face all dirt and tears and an old drill dress half slipping off one shoulder. Now she looked cool and fresh, as fresh as if she had just come from bathing. And at first he thought she looked older, but then didn't, and he could never make up his mind on that point. And then he saw that the youngest of the kings was Eustace, but he also was changed as Jill was changed. Tyrion suddenly felt awkward about coming among these people with the blood and dust and sweat of a battle still on him. Next moment, he realized that he was not in that state at all, 
He was fresh and cool and clean and dressed in such clothes as he would have worn for a great feast at Care Paravel. But in Narnia, your good clothes were never your uncomfortable ones. They knew how to make things that felt beautiful as well as looking beautiful in Narnia. And there was no such thing as starch or flannel or elastic to be found from one end of the country to the other. So one of the great things, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So scripture, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There is a glory in this beginning that we're starting to get to in this book. And those of you who were around a couple of years ago when we studied the silver chair well, remember that there is a passage in there that foreshadows this because they are in Aslan's country. And what has happened is they've gotten caught in that Narnia time warp where people are much older. Um, you know, they go back to England, the children do, for a couple of months, and they come back to Narnia and discover that 100 years have gone by. And they miss their opportunity to see their dear friend Caspian. And then they learn that Caspian has died. And they are just beside themselves with grief. But Aslan takes them into his country. And there, when they get to Aslan's country, there's this beautiful sparkling stream. Where have we heard that before? Beautiful sparkling stream. And as they look in the water they see Caspian lying in the stream. And as they watch, his wizened old face and gray hair are transformed. And the lines go away, and he begins to start looking just like he did as a 20-year-old when they knew him before. And his gray hair becomes golden again and full, and he is lying there looking more and more like the Caspian they knew. And then Aslan tells Eustace to go and pluck a thorn from the thorn bush. And so Eustace does that, and then he comes back, and Aslan holds up his paw and says, stick the thorn deep in my paw. And Eustace is like, no, I'm not going to do that. That will hurt you terribly. 
And Aslan says, do what I have asked. So he plunges the thorn into Aslan's paw and the blood from the paw drips down into the sparkling stream. And as that happens, Caspian sits up. It's just so amazing. Makes me cry. Um, he sits up and he, he says, hail, well met, friends. And it is just the most glorious thing. And Lewis is foreshadowing what we're going to see in these next few chapters. And one of the things that is so amazing about this, some of you were here um, for mere Anglicanism or for the service at St. Philip's on the Sunday afterwards and heard my friend Vaughn Roberts preach. And if you were paying attention in the introductions, you know that Vaughn Roberts is a truly brilliant man who um, went to Winchester College, one of the top prep schools in the UK, went to Cambridge, took a first at Cambridge in law, then went to Oxford and studied theology, um, has written all sorts of scholarly papers. And the very first time that I met Vaughn, probably eight or nine years ago, I was leading a Lewis pilgrimage in Oxford, and we went to St. Ebbs on Sunday morning, and his text was Revelation 21. And so we were sitting there listening, and it was a really great sermon. And he was quoting from a lot of the leading Anglican theologians and talking about Austin Ferrer and some of the old archbishops of Canterbury and talking about various deep theological things about Revelation 21. But then he stopped and he said, but honestly, if you really want to understand what the scriptures teach about heaven and eternal life, the very best thing you could do is read the last four chapters of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. He said it brings all of it together in the most beautiful way. And of course, we were on a Lewis pilgrimage, and so we were just like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, it, it was an amazing moment. But I think there's a deep truth in that, and that these, these stories are much more than just stories. So another thing that we see is that not all enter into Aslan's presence. Sir, said Tyrion, when he had greeted all these, if I have read the Chronicles aright, there should be another. Has not your majesty two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Oh, Susan, said Jill, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She was always a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said the Lady Polly. I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. And there, there's a lot of truth in this, but part of what Lewis is trying to get at is that Aslan does not force anyone into his country. He does not make people follow him. But the other thing that you see here, um, and Lewis actually wrote um, to some children who were very worried about Susan after they'd read this, and so they wrote him letters, and 
one of the things a lot of people don't realize is Lewis answered every letter he got, uh, which was thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. Um, and I would commend to you to read his collected letters. It's a stack of books about that high. Um, they're really wonderful. But there's a smaller book that's called Letters to Children that's a selection of letters that he wrote. And one of the letters he wrote was to a little 12-year-old girl who would later become known to the world as Kathy Keller, the wife of Tim Keller. And she was converted to Christianity through reading the Chronicles of Narnia and corresponding with Lewis. But in any event, in one of these letters, when somebody had written and was deeply disturbed about Susan, he said, well, the story doesn't really tell you what happens to Susan. It says this is why she's away during this period of her life, but there's no telling whether she may have been drawn to Aslan later. So it's kind of an open question, which is what the little first things article uh, over there is the handout talks to you about. So some scripture. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And Jesus was passing from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And one of the things that you see when Jesus teaches about this is that the important thing is knowing Jesus, not knowing about Jesus or having done things in his name, but actually knowing him. And you'll remember in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins that when the door is shut, he says, I do not know you. And so that, that is the thing that's so important. And this, this knowing that we just talked about, remember how Jesus says that the way that he knows his sheep is the same way that the father knows the son. And I don't know if any of you have ever watched, you may have seen this in the Holy Land. There are also some great YouTube videos about this of sheep and goats in sheep pens. And the remarkable thing about it, um, you may have heard Jeff recently preach about sheep, uh, but sheep are, let's just say, not the brightest animals in God's creation. Um, if they fall on their back, they're like that old commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up. Um, they can't get up without someone coming and writing them. And they can't find food without being led to it. There's all sorts of problems with sheep. But one of the things that is quite remarkable about them is they know their shepherd's voice. And in the Middle East, what will happen is multiple shepherds will put their flocks 
into the sheepfold. So there might be 10 different flocks in the sheepfold and some goats there too. And the shepherd comes and there are hundreds and hundreds of these stinky, bleeding sheep out there. And the shepherd calls out in his voice, his call to the sheep. And immediately you'll see the sheep come and that they just come in a straight line right toward their shepherd. And that would have been an image that anyone who heard Jesus' teaching would have been very familiar with. Um, it's not one that we're familiar with, but when, when he talks about the sheep know his voice, that's the image that he wants us to have in our minds. So I want to just close with reading the words of this anthem uh, because these are part of the words from Revelation 21. And this is something that we need to spend more time thinking about. We have such an impoverished understanding of heaven. And this is something we talked about a lot when we were doing the great divorce, but we have such an impoverished understanding. And I know I always pick on Hallmark, but I'm gonna do it again. Um, we have a Hallmark card idea of heaven where we think of little pink clouds with little fat baby angels on them with little harps. And we think that's what heaven is. And you know, that's why you see these cross-stitched pillows that said, you know, hell for company. You know, better to go to hell where the people are more interesting. Um, and that is so just completely wrong about what heaven is like. And so getting a more robust theology of the beauty and wonder of heaven is really important. So listen to these words. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That is a wonderful thing to meditate on. And when I send out the email with the link to this anthem, I implore you to listen to it. Because you may have noticed I'm slightly obsessed with choral music. If you have to be obsessed with something, that's not the worst thing. Uh, but this particular anthem, I think is one of the two or three top anthems of having the words and the music set forth the truth of the passage, the way that the composer has written the music and brings this passage to life in a way that you just can't do through reading it. So I will commend that to you. Let me go ahead and close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the beauty of this book. Lord, we thank you that even in the last battle, with what looks like from the worldly perspective, a defeat, that there's joy and truth and beauty and goodness 
as we come to Aslan's country. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lean into our relationship with you, to know deeply your love for us, to listen for your voice as sheep. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be more and more focused on the things of your kingdom, and that as we walk through the season of Lent, you would remind us of the depth of your love for us, that at Easter we might truly rejoice. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Um, Please meet someone that you do not know before you go home.